Hello and welcome to A Murderous Affair. My name is Gabrielle and this is the podcast where we talk about women in history known for mayhem and murder. This month in February, it's Black History Month. And to celebrate, we're talking about Stephanie St. Clair, a woman who battled hardcore mobsters, police, both corrupt and not, and other gangsters who tried to take over the piece of New York she'd carved out for herself and taken control of. I've been really looking forward to covering her story. Stephanie St. Clair was born in the West Indies to single mom Felicianne, who worked numerous jobs in order to send her daughter to school. She attended school until she was around between 13 and 15 when her mom got sick and she had to leave school to take care of her. Not long after she did, her mother died and St. Clair was able to save up enough money to leave the West Indies to immigrate to the United States. She ended up using this voyage to learn English so she would be able to get by in the new country. She arrived to New York in either 1911 or 1912 and there's actually a ton of discrepancies about whether she went directly to New York or spent some time in France beforehand. Basically, a lot of sources have gotten their information about St. Clair's early life from an author named Raphael Confiant, who wrote one of the most well-known biographies about her called Madame St. Clair, Reine de Harlem, which I'm guessing translates to English as Madame St. Clair, ruler of Harlem. It's his account and his biography that other sources tend to use as citation. And in this, it says that she boarded the SS Juliana at about 23, stating that she couldn't quite remember her age or when she was born. Now, another biographer that people tend to refer to is Shirley Stewart, who wrote The World of Stephanie St. Clair, an Entrepreneur, Racewoman, and Outlaw in the Early 20th Century Harlem. In her biography, Stewart writes that St. Clair was an educated woman, and there's no reason that she wouldn't have known her age unless she wanted people to be uncertain of her age and intelligence. It's also said in Stewart's biography that St. Clair was born in 1897, not 1887, which a lot of other people tend to put as her date of birth, and that she would have been 13 years old when she first traveled to the U.S. via the steamer boat. In any case, most sources agree that while St. Clair arrived in the United States first and spent some time in Harlem, she ended up leaving for a period of five years and that she went to Canada to work as a domestic servant before later returning to New York. She ended up settling back into the growing black community of Harlem in Northeast Manhattan and was able to speak both French and English, which gave her a huge advantage there. See, because she was able to speak French, she was able to embellish about her life and agree with the rumors that she had been born in France, which has probably led to why biographists now have such a hard time twisting fact from fiction. Quick history lesson, she ended up back in Harlem a few years before the Great Migration, which was an event where millions of black men and women left the extremely harsh and cruel Jim Crow South for the relatively free, in comparison, northern cities like New York. She ended up meeting future boyfriend Ed, no last name that I was able to find, when she arrived and used his connections to begin her own business in selling drugs. After only a few months in business, she had made $30,000, which is impressive for any time period, but not counting the inflation that probably makes that number way bigger than it appears if we converted it to date to today's money. Anyway, realizing how she how good she was at this and wanting to expand her business, she told Ed she wanted to leave him and run the business on her own. This made him extremely angry and he tried to strangle her. 
only for her to push him away with such force that he fell over backwards and cracked his head against the edge of a table and died. And just like that, no more Ed. It's not really said if there was any kind of investigation into this, and if there was, this may have been where she first started to bribe cops to keeping her stories or keeping the rumors that she was involved out of popular knowledge. In the months after his death was when she began employing her own men, growing the amount of cops that she bribed and that were basically working for her, and actually invested around $10,000 of her own money in a lottery game in Harlem on April 12, 1917. This was the beginning of her success in the numbers game, and she soon became known for her involvement. Basically, the numbers game is a mix of like investing, gambling, and playing the lottery. During this time period, most banks wouldn't accept black customers, so St. Clair used her connections and money as a way to function as a bank for black Harlem residents who wanted to invest their money. So if anyone basically wanted to place a bet or wanted to try and play the lottery, they would go to St. Clair and give her the money and then she would take a cut from anything that they won or uh, keep the money that they didn't win. She was the only woman at this time to head the numbers racket in Harlem as every other head boss, so to speak, was a man. Heading the racket made her extremely wealthy, about $20,000 a year in the 1920s, which estimates to about $278,000 a year today. Uh, around this time, she was oftentimes known as Madame St. Clair around Harlem or Queen St. Clair outside of Harlem. This also made her a huge target since mobsters who'd been using New York for racketeering were looking a way to enhance their profits. So the prohibition had basically given mobsters a way to launder their money with illegal speakeasies and the like, and now that the prohibition was coming to an end, they were looking for a new way to make money and had their eye on the numbers game in Harlem. A Bronx mob boss, Dutch Schultz, was the first try to try to move in on Harlem, killing the numbers operators who worked for St. Clair when they refused to switch and pay him protection fees. St. Clair and her right-hand man and chief enforcer, Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson, also refused the protection fees that Schultz tried to afford them to pay. In return, they faced intimidation and violent encounters by the police, but St. Clair, instead of submitting to Schultz like many of his other business opponents had, fired back by attacking the storefronts of businesses that ran Schultz's betting operations and also sending in tips about him and his movements. Eventually, it was enough for the police to raid his house arrest a dozen of his employees, and to take about 12 million, or in today's currency, 190.6 million dollars. A consequence, though, of being the lead on the attack against Schultz and defending her so-called territory was that St. Clair was shoved directly into the spotlight. She had to become legitimate to stay away from police detection and keep her operations safe. So she made her right-hand man, Bumpy, the front of the criminal business. With Bumpy being the go-to for the mobs, they were forced to negotiate percentages to conduct business in the Harlem territory. Eventually, this partnership led to the five families of mob bosses in New York to decide that Schultz was becoming more trouble than he was worth and he was actually assassinated on their orders. Although he didn't die right away, he survived long enough so that St. Clair, even though she wasn't involved with planning the assassination, was able to send an infamous telegram to his bedside as he was dying that said, quote, as ye sow, so shall ye reap, which eventually made headlines across the United States in every major newspaper. 
Sending messages in newspapers was kind of what St. Clair was known for. She would put ads in the local newspapers educating the Harlem community about their legal rights, advocating for voting rights, and calling out police brutality against the black community. Now, of course, this led to her being harassed by police and others who just didn't like the fact that she was posting these things in the newspaper. And she actually tried to report them to local authorities. But of course, they didn't listen. And she ended up running advertisements in Harlem newspapers that accused senior police officers of corruption. In response to this, the police decided that arresting her on a trumped-up charge was the best way to handle the situation, and she spent eight months in a workhouse. However, she ended up getting the last word, as in response to this, she ended up testifying to a police commissioner about the kickbacks that she had actually paid officers and those who had participated in the illegal gambling racket in Harlem. As a result, the commission ended up firing more than a dozen police officers that she had reported. Upon her release from the workhouse, St. Clair decided to retire from the numbers game, and start a new era of her life as an advocate for political reform. In the late 1930s, she met her future husband, Sufi Abdul Hamid, who was known as, quote, the Black Hitler for his anti-Semitic and Nazi activism. Obviously, St. Clair and Hamid's marriage went downhill quickly when she found out that he allegedly had, affair, had an affair with a black fortune teller known as Fudum, whose real name was Dorothy Matthews. Eventually, St. Clair would divorce Hamid and Hamid would end up marrying this fortune teller. And together they founded a Buddhist temple. Overall, really weird side note of the, her story. But the interesting point is that when their marriage officially ended in 1938, it was because St. Clair shot Hamid during a fight over his relationship with Fatum, and she was sentenced to two to 10 years at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in New York. She was released from prison in the early 1940s and decided to kind of retire and pull back from the underworld and transition into a, quote, prosperous, legitimate businesswoman. She would write columns in the local newspaper about discrimination, police brutality, illegal search raids, raids, and other issues facing the black community. She had the protection of her right-hand man, Bumpy Johnson. From the time that she kind of stepped back and gave him the position as the front man, she was basically guaranteed protection for the rest of her life. She was still wealthy, and Bumpy Johnson had actually come back to live with her and to write poetry until he died of a heart attack in 1968. Soon after Bumpy Johnson died, St. Clair ended up following, and 18 months later, in 1969, she was 72 years old at the time. And that is the story of Stephanie St. Clair, the Queen of Harlem, who single-handedly took on members of the Italian mob, the New York Police Department, and other criminals in that area, and won. Overall is probably one of the more interesting criminals that I wish we had more information on. That is all that I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening. If there's anything important that I missed about Stephanie St. Clair, if there's any information that uh, you feel is important, please feel free to reach out to me and I'll post updates or just let me know if there's anything important that I missed. You can find me at Frumious Reads. That's F-R-U-M-I-O-U-S-R-E-A-D-S. And I am on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, any and all social media. You can listen to the podcast and follow or subscribe on any major podcast listening platform. We are on Apple, we are on Amazon, Google Play, basically anywhere you can find the podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow to stay up to date as to when any new episode comes out. But that's all I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening. 
and I will talk to you later. Stay spooky, friends. Goodbye.